Well, it's going to be one of the more interesting sermons I've preached, not so much because of the uh, content, but because of the circumstances. At least we have a few people here to listen, a little skeleton crew, thankful for you guys. Preaching to an empty room would be a, a little weird. But to everyone at home, we're glad you could join us in spirit, and we're thankful that God's word never returns void, no matter the means through which it's delivered. These are obviously very trying times, and they merit a response from God's word. And that's what we're going to do today. Normally, I don't preach on current events. We typically favor that the verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture. But as a shepherd, it's crystal clear. Our people want and need just a word from the Lord and some biblical perspective on this current crisis. Now, speaking of current events, I think you all know what I'm talking about. There's been a lot of big headlines in this previous week, and they have people very concerned and worried, and, and we need to talk about them. Now, of course, I'm mostly talking about Tom Brady leaving the Patriots and signing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing. Who, who would have thought? I got to preach at least a couple of sermons on that just to biblically address that. I mean, is it a sign of the end times? I don't know. But on a more serious note, many people are truly concerned about the COVID-19 or coronavirus outbreak going on. And, you know, mere two weeks ago, none of us were concerned. The shelves were still stocked full with toilet paper. People didn't look at you funny for coughing, and I didn't think twice about attending a pastor's conference with 3,000 people from around the globe. But much has indeed changed since then. As of a few days ago, there were over 10,000 confirmed cases in the U.S., 150 deaths. That includes 652 cases in California and seven cases in our county. And I'm sure by now those numbers have all increased. And some people, especially the elderly and the immunocompromised, are, are quite concerned and fearful And we understand that. Now, others are more concerned about the social response. Now, the Bay Area was put into a a shelter-in-place order earlier this week, as was our own county of San Luis County after seven confirmed cases. It's one step away from a full lockdown, which is what our our missionary brothers in Spain are are going through right now. The streets are closed, they say, that the military has been deployed. People have lost their jobs. You can only leave the house one person at a time. You know, these anecdotes from other places, combined with the extreme measures of our own community, have many people more concerned about that than the virus itself. Only time will tell how long this will last. But because of these circumstances, coronavirus is not the only pandemic that's spreading right now. There is a second deadly pandemic on the move. It is just as contagious. It affects all people. It spreads easily through the airwaves. And of course, I'm talking about fear. We've not seen such widespread fear since 9-11. But even 9-11 was more shocking than fearful. I don't think people were genuinely afraid too much that a terrorist would attack their small town after 9-11. But a virus pandemic threatens everyone, everywhere, and it spawned a new level of fear among many people. Some of this fear is founded, some unfounded. This virus is very real. How threatening it is, is hard to say. Your answer will largely be determined by your news source. You're going to hear plenty of voices that will say coronavirus is not that much deadlier, if at all, than the common flu, and we should just let it run its course. But you're going to hear other voices that say otherwise, that the mortality rate is much higher, and and leaving an outbreak unchecked will overwhelm our, our medical system. My personal opinion, I'm going to leave out because, well, who am I and what do I know? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pathologist. And to be honest, I don't have enough accurate information to give, I think, a truly informed opinion anyway. It's just hard to say right now. But thankfully, that's not what this time is for. You don't need my opinion on how to respond to this situation. You need instruction from God in his word. And no, look, the Bible is not a handbook on how to respond to pathogens. You know, we have government for that. And indeed, Scripture instructs us to be in subjection to our governing authorities. And so right now, whatever your opinion is, we believe it's only right for us to submit to the the advisories of our governing authorities. Show love to our most vulnerable neighbors by not contributing to the spread of this virus. And that's what we're going to do. That's why most of you are likely watching this video right now from home in your pajamas. And don't get used to it. But I am more concerned with how we as the church responds to this situation spiritually. You know, in thought, in speech, in deed, 
How should we respond to something like a, a virus pandemic? And does the Bible actually have anything to say at all about something like this? And how should our response be shaped by Scripture, especially in the face of a, a pandemic of fear? Should Christians likewise give in to fear? I trust you already know the answer to that question. But we need boldness in a time like this. We need confidence. We need assurance. We need peace. And that's not going to come from a word from me. It's going to come from a word from God in his scriptures. I mean, you realize what the Bible represents, right? The Bible does not directly address every trial and crisis we may face. But its supernatural value comes in, in giving us God's perspective on on everything. God in scripture, he's giving us his mind, his thoughts, his eternal perspective on matters of life and death. And that perspective, especially in a time of crisis, is everything. It's only that divine perspective that enables us to rightly respond to a time of crisis, a time of distress. I mean, like, how else can you make sense of a verse like this? James 1, 2. You probably know it. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials. I mean, to the world, that sounds crazy. How on earth could you consider suffering and trials joy? It doesn't make any sense to the world, at least, because they're coming from a very limited perspective. I mean, seeing this world and this life as all there is, an existential threat like a virus pandemic presents you know, zero opportunities for joy. That There's nothing redeeming about this. But the only way you can make sense of this is when you look at things like, like suffering, like trials, like outbreaks through a different perspective, a spiritual perspective, an eternal perspective. Indeed, that's what James is trying to get his readers to do. He knows that trials are not inherently joyful. They're, they're not fun. They're painful. And naturally, in the flesh, we're going to respond with, with fear and anxiety and worry. That's why he tells us to consider them joy. There, there's something we need to do to count them joy. And James is calling us to change not our circumstances, because we often have no control over our circumstances, but he's calling us to change how we view our circumstances, how we think about and interpret our circumstances. And as we interpret our circumstances from God's perspective, well, guess what? You find some redeeming value. You find some sources of great joy, even in the midst of the valley of death. So like we said before, perspective is everything. Do you want to respond to this current global crisis in fear, panic, and worry? Like so many people in the world, do you want to lose sleep, sink into depression, and constantly live in fear each day of what tomorrow's headline might bring? I mean, does that response sound glorifying to God? Does it sound good for you? Does it sound evangelistic to others? No, this, this is not a time to give in to fear, but to respond in faith. And by faith, which is grounded on the solid rock of God's word, we are enabled to see all things through God's eyes. We gain insight into his divine, eternal perspective. And I'll say again, if you can make that your perspective, if you can let God's perspective override your, your tiny little earthly perspective, it's going to completely transform how you respond to trials, tribulations, outbreaks, and whatever. So I can ask you instead, do you want to respond to this global crisis with peace and joy and confidence? Do you want to live responsibly, act wisely, but, but not worry about what tomorrow might bring? Do you want to face whatever comes with just grace? It sounds then what you need to do is, is search the scriptures and find God's eternal perspective on matters of life and death. And that's what we're going to do today. That, that's our simple goal for this morning. We're just going to survey the word, more of a survey of scripture. But we're going to aim to discover God's eternal perspective on life and death. That you might rightly respond to our trying times. We're trying to discover God's 
eternal perspective on life and death. And that's a valuable thing. So why don't we begin with some of the basic facts of Scripture on life and death. Now, first, we know all life is precious. I hope you know this, that all human life at every stage of life is precious because all are made in the image of God. God creating us in his image, that's what gives our lives such great value. But this also explains why we're so troubled by death. That death itself is a fact of life. As scripture teaches, though, it shouldn't be this way. All people know in their hearts that things are not the way they should be. Something's wrong here. Something is broken with this world. And the problem of this world always finds its way back to, to one thing, death. Is that all life ends in death. And in, in an instant, everything you have in the gain column just gets immediately transferred to the loss column. Your health, your wealth, your relationships, your, your possessions, everything you have is just gone in a blink of an eye. Death is a great equalizer. It comes for us all. And it's the fact of death that makes life vanity. You can turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you're quick, it was just a survey this morning. But this is what King Solomon discovered in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, look at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. He starts off and says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Solomon the king sought to find meaning and purpose in life on earth, down below, but but he couldn't. All he found was vanity. I mean, you live, you work, you get married, you have kids, you you work some more, then you die. Life is just constant toil to survive. And even if you accumulate much, all is just lost in an instant. He says in uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 15 and 16, speaking of man or mankind, he says, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? What's the point of this life? No one's truly remembered. Nothing lasts. All is lost. And this is futile. All is vanity, like he says. And, and everything he says is absolutely true, apart from God. You see, Solomon was seeking to, to find if, if any lasting satisfaction can be found in this life, here down below. But he learned It can't. And this is the predicament of the atheist. Apart from an eternal God, life itself has no absolute meaning. Talk about depressing. But everyone in their heart of hearts knows that there is more. Like Solomon testified, Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God set eternity in the heart of man. The meaning and the purpose, and the satisfaction that your soul desperately longs for can be found. But it's not below. It's it's only by looking up. And Solomon, in the end, found that only an eternal perspective brings meaning. You know his conclusion. You can look at chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He says, bringing God back into the equation, the conclusion, when all has been heard is... Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that's only logical, isn't it? If this life is all there is, then eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if there really is an eternity, if that's true, this life is not the life worth living for. You can go back to James, and if you want to turn again, you got to be quick, but you can go to James chapter 4 and listen to the inspired wisdom James adds, in many ways echoing Ecclesiastes, James four thirteen and 14. He says, come now, you who say, 
Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business, make a profit. Then James says, but you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You need to think about both the, the fragility of life and the brevity of life. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You might be sitting on a mountain of toilet paper in your garage. You're ready to ride out the coronavirus. You're prepared for anything. But the next moment, you could die from a heart attack. Life is precious, but it's also so fragile. And it's also so brief. He says your, your life is just a vapor. Maybe you partake in this ritual of a morning cup of coffee. And so you know well the sight of that vapor you know, steaming off the top of that cup and just floats in the air. But then in a second, it, it dissipates. It's gone. It just where'd it go? It's almost as if it was never really there. But that's what James says your life is like compared to eternity. You're just, you're just a vapor, your life. You know, some of you who are older, you know that most of your life is behind you. It's not in front of you anymore. And so you don't just know this, you feel this. Solomon was right that this life down below, it's just, it's vanity. And scripture does not pull any punches about the futility of life below, of human life apart from God. But it does not say, <clears throat> pardon me, it does not say this is good or right. Now the Bible testifies there's something very wrong here. That God didn't make life to be vain or futile. And something's amiss. If you want to get more of God's eternal perspective on, on life and death, you got to go back, back further, back to the beginning. And we're talking creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And again, for now, we're, we're just going to summarize. But I trust you know that, that God made this world perfect. It, it wasn't just good. It was very good. It was free from all sin and evil, and notably death, that God's original creation was untouched by death. Mankind was made in God's image. He was made to reflect God's glory, to steward this world. And there is perfect harmony between God, man, and the world. That's the place to be. I want to go to that place. But that place was lost. You know, Genesis 3, you, you turn the page. Satan tempted Adam and Eve sinned, death resulted, and then God cursed. And it's safe to say a lot changed on that day. In an instant, sin, Satan, and death emerged as the enemies of our soul. And together they worked to, to choke the life out of us and lead us to an eternal death. And for a long time, death always had the last word. Now look, God sovereignly allowed sin and death to enter his creation. He, he did so for his greater purposes, working things out for his greater glory. We'll save those reflections for another time. But I just want you to consider for now, what exactly changed after this fall? Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled against his perfect will. And that changed things. God didn't change. But Adam and Eve changed in their relation to God. Now they were standing on the other side of his perfect holiness. And God being perfectly holy will not stand in the presence of evil. And so standing now on the wrong side, they were going to face the consequences. And part of those consequences included a cursed world. In judgment, do you remember God said to Adam, who's the head of the human race, he said, cursed is the ground because of you, Genesis 3.17. Or as Paul puts this in Romans 8.20, that creation itself was subjected to futility. That the world was made a slave to corruption. And this is why, look, fires, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, outbreaks, viruses. They were not part of God's original created order. They represent disorder. And they're a reflection of a world that was cursed and subjected to futility. And that curse would extend to us. Mankind was not untouched. 
That God also said to Adam, Genesis 3.19, he says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man was cursed with death. You know, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And on that day, Adam and Eve were merely getting payment for their labor, their labor of sin. They got their wages. This curse of death would then extend to all humanity, all descendants of Adam and Eve. The Apostle Paul again adds in Romans 5.12. He says, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the biblical explanation of of death. It's not natural. It's a curse. It it was not meant to be, but it is. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, you know, all this being said, biblically speaking, it gets worse. Because there's not just one death. There are two deaths. You know, death in scripture refers to separation. The first death is your physical death. It's where your body is separated from your soul and your body will return to dust. Your soul will live on. God made your soul to live on now eternally. It's just that you're not going to live on eternally with God. But being corrupt in sin, you're going to live on eternally separated from the goodness of God. You'll live on eternally under God's Judgment, that's what scripture calls the second death, a spiritual death. Like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, look, there's a God in heaven. He's going to bring every act to judgment. You know, God allowed sin and evil into this world. It's not like he's going to let them get the last word. He's not going to let them prevail. He's going to judge and make all things right. It's just that that spells bad news for us because we're part of the problem. We're all born astray, and then we go on to further sin and rebel against our good creator, God. And so we have problems, and they're not all equal. You know, already from what we've learned about this eternal perspective, you can tell that your first death is not your biggest problem. You're going to die. The coronavirus death rate might be 5%, give or take. I guess we'll find out in time as time goes on. But we understand that the everything else death rate is still 100%, right? Like you're going to die from something. It may not be a virus. It, it may be a virus, but something's going to kill you. Do you fear that? Maybe. But that should not be your biggest fear. Your biggest fear should be God himself who's a just judge and the second death. And a coronavirus is nothing compared to an eternity under the, the perfectly just wrath of God. Now look, I know that so far, this, this all sounds pretty depressing. You might be wondering like, what, what's he trying to do here? There's been nothing encouraging about any of this. This, this all sounds like, like a bunch of bad news. And that's true. But if you want to gain God's perspective on life and death, this is how it starts. It starts with the bleak reality of our fallen human condition. But I'll tell you what, if you can understand and just own the bad news, which includes your own personal sin before a holy God, that's what makes the good news so good. And thankfully, there is good news here. And thankfully, death is not the end of the story. Death is not going to get the last word in God's world. Christ will. The good news in God's eternal perspective now is entirely bound up in a person, Christ Jesus, and his gospel. And that's what gospel means. Good news. God is perfectly holy and just and righteous. That's why he must judge sin. He's only right to do so. But God is also rich in mercy and love and grace. And that's why he sought to redeem and restore his fallen creation. That creation itself will not forever 
be subjected to futility. And, and God's special creation, man, made in his image, will not be marred forever. And in his grace, God made a way to save us from the chokehold of our enemies, sin, Satan, death. They're all answered in, in a way. The way, the truth, the life, Christ Jesus, he's the answer. I want you to think about this. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus completely answered first our sin problem. You can fly over to Colossians 2 if you want a quick reference here. And as you're turning, you know, think about all the sin and wrongdoing you have done. Every thought, every word, every deed. And who's without fault? Then just imagine that your every transgression was written in a book. Each page details your, your every outburst of anger, your every lie, your every lustful thought, your every wicked deed. It's all there. It's in your handwriting. You have done these things. You are guilty. You violated God's perfect will. But did you know that on the cross, it, it is as if Jesus took that record book of sins and you know, at the bottom of each page, he signed his own name. As if he had done those things. As if they belonged to him. And then he he paid the penalty for them all. On the cross, Jesus suffered the full wrath of God on our behalf. That that we might be fully forgiven. Now our record book is, is empty. He took them all. Isn't this what we learned in Colossians just not long ago? Colossians 2. 13 and 14. I love how Paul so picturesquely puts this. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that he, God, made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How do you do that? Verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then rising from the dead, Jesus proved that his payment wasn't full, that there's nothing left. Death could not hold him. He paid the full penalty and he overcame our sin. The same goes for Satan, the second enemy of our souls. The next verse in Colossians goes on to say, verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And there are spiritual forces of evil and rebellion against God. They're led by Satan and they work to enslave and kill mankind. And they do so by leading us into sin. But in overcoming sin, Jesus took away Satan's power over us. His was a successful rescue operation. Right, that's back Colossians 1, 13, 14. That he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is starting to sound like better news. But it goes on. Because Jesus not only overcame our sin, And Satan himself, but he also overcame the futility of life, which is death. That Christ himself was made subject to death, tasting death for us. But on the third day, he rose again to new and everlasting life. That proving he is the master even over death. He's the source of life. What could death do to him? It could not hold him. He has authority over death itself. And now he grants to those who follow him the same everlasting resurrection life. I mean, talk about an eternal perspective. You know, over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has a lot to say about resurrection. Understanding God's plan, even after salvation, we're still going to die. Our bodies remain cursed, so we will suffer, decay, and then die. Maybe from a virus. But death is not the end. And that just as Jesus rose from the grave to an everlasting life, so 
will those in him. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, where Paul says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's very good news. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and with it, this offer of, of a complete and eternal salvation. That in Christ alone, you find the answer to death and the meaning to life. And you guys all know the verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so the only question is, what will you receive him? And will you believe in him? This offer he makes of now forgiveness and eternal life, it's, it's only received one way. By faith. John 3.36 goes on. He says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. I mean, what is faith? Faith is the anti-work. It starts with repentance. With the, with the recognition that, that you are guilty before your creator. You have sinned. You deserve his justice. But then you see God's offer, Christ, God the Son, crucified, risen, ascended. And you believe, you see his work and you place all of your trust, not in your own works to save you, but in his finished work on the cross. You simply cry out to God for mercy through Christ. But God promises to always hear that cry and he will grant new life. You know, the coronavirus is not your biggest problem, and it need not be your biggest fear. Fear God. But then also see his love for you. See this, this offer of mercy extended in Christ and believe. Get right with your creator. Receive his free gift of life eternal by turning to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. And Christ is your only hope. And now I want to say for those of you who have made Christ your hope, you need to realize too, he's your only hope, but he gives you an abundance of hope. And that hope comes through this eternal perspective. We've talked about eternal death, eternal life. Let's just kind of connect the dots now and show how, how living with God's perspective on eternal matters that enables us to rightly respond to whatever we face in this life while we're, we are still here on this side of eternity. You know, when you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you get no promises of a carefree life. This world is still cursed. Our bodies are still cursed. So hardship, poverty, sickness, suffering, viruses, death, you can expect them all. We're even told by Jesus to now expect persecution. And just as he suffered at the hands of wicked men, so will we. But as we simply, though, endure, clinging to Christ by faith, he's going to sustain us with this heavenly hope. You know, true Christianity does not have a great sales pitch. That Christ himself said, if you want to follow him, hey, all you got to do is deny yourself completely, pick up your cross, this instrument of death, and then you can follow him. Who's going to do that? Well, only those who, who by faith come to just gain this eternal perspective. They realize, you know what, that, that there's, there is more to this life. There is a next life, and there might be a cross in this life, but that's what leads to a crown in the next life. This life is not all there is, and this life is not the life worth living for. Our true and eternal life is now with Christ 
above. One day we will be there with him. And for now, we are called simply to persevere in the faith to the end. And we do that by clinging to this heavenly hope. But that being said, there's nothing quite like a trial to cloud that hope. There's nothing like a little bit of chaos and trouble on earth to make you forget your heavenly hope. And when suffering abounds, it feels like that's all there is. But it's not. Trials and and tribulation present the believer with pain and suffering. Yes, but they present us with no reason to despair. Because, well, Christ, our hope, is unchanged. And so if we're going to simply endure and then rightly respond, what do we need to be doing here? We need to be going back to that eternal perspective and subscribing to it. We need to be setting our minds on things above. I mean, if you're still in Colossians, look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above. Not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life, your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You know, coming to Jesus is no small thing. Christianity is not a hobby. And faith in Jesus, it's not just something you, you tack on to your life. If he truly is Lord and Savior, your God and Creator, he demands your whole life. This is what salvation requires. God's gift of salvation is free. It's just that it costs your whole life. Your very life. If you want to live, you have to die. You die to self. You die to sin. You die to this life. But when you set your mind on things above, you you realize quickly, that's worth it. That's a no-brainer. Jesus is worth it. And by faith, as you put on the lens of Scripture, you realize that this life is not all there is. God made you and then saved you for eternity. Yeah, there's still plenty of work to do here on earth for his kingdom. And don't think this eternal perspective makes us passive in this life. It doesn't. It's just that we're constantly reminded, we need to be reminded, this world is not our home. We're still here, but we don't belong here anymore. It's like in Hebrews 11, we see that this this parade of, of these great men and women of the faith. And what did they confess? It says in verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on earth, not just in the country, just on the whole planet. Like we, we don't belong here anymore. They realized they had no true lasting promised land here below. And they were looking for a better country, a better home. God prepared a place for them. Where is that place? It's above. It's where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so are you setting your mind there? Listen, a a sure way to wrongly respond to times of distress is to live like this life is all there is. That's a sure way to just freak out and panic because, well, it's not going to go well here below and and you're going to be depressed. But don't do that because this world is, it's a dead end. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. We love people, we love neighbors, we love even our enemies, but not this world system. It's passing away. He says in verse 17, the world, it's passing away. And also it's lust, but he who does the will of God lives forever. This world is cursed. And apart from Christ, there's no hope here below. Solomon learned it. I hope you have learned it. There's only judgment. So don't live for the things of this world. Live for Christ and fix your eyes on heaven. Then you'll be able to make sense of what Jesus himself said. Let me read for you Matthew 6, 19 through, through 21, part of the 
Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Kind of sounds like Jesus was living with an eternal perspective. But this is going to challenge you, even as Christians. What do you really believe? And then what are you really living for? Those in the world, they are living for the things of the world. Money, health, family, career, power, prestige, fame, possessions. The list goes on. These things aren't all evil. It's just that they're not worthy of your life. They're not things to live for. And furthermore, all these things in the world, they're going to be lost. And then what? What happens when some disaster takes your job or takes your health, takes your loved one? What then? Where's your joy then? It's gone. Because your joy was in this thing of the world, but that's gone. And so now your joy is gone. But you, Christian, are to be different. We live in this world. We work here. We love our neighbors. We, we deeply love our families. We even accumulate possessions. These things are not wrong. It's just that very clearly we know it. We do not live for these things. Anything, even any person. You must have only one true treasure in your heart, Christ Jesus. We're not living for a thing now. We're living for a person, Christ the Lord. You know, Jesus taught this parable in Matthew 13, 45, 46. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and bought it. He sold everything. He forsook everything just for one pearl of great price. And, and realize Christ himself is that pearl. He's what makes the kingdom valuable. He's the only thing worth your life. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your heart? Where is your treasure? Even in times like these, if your life falls into a tailspin because of some trial and tribulation or some pandemic, it's merely revealing that you know, ultimately, you are treasuring something other than Christ. And yes, we too will, will suffer and cry and hurt living in a fallen world. But we're not going to despair. We're going to stop just short of despairing. Because our hope is not lost. and Our joy is not lost. Our hope and joy are eternal. They're found in Christ He's the one who conquered death. And what could possibly disturb him, our source of hope and joy? He can't be taken away. We cannot lose him. And this is why even in trials, we can have joy. Even in, in, the, in the face of death, we can smile. Only if Christ is your heart's treasure, can you say along with the Apostle Paul in, in Philippians 1.21, where he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. What does that mean? Into the world, that sounds crazy. I mean, death is lost. When you die, you, you lose everything. All the things you value, possessions, your family members, your estate, your status. It's all gone. That's true to the world. But with an eternal perspective, when you have faith in Christ, it's actually not true. Yeah, you lose stuff. But if you know Christ, if Christ is your treasure, then death is gain. Because in death, you're just getting more of your treasure. Christ, you get more of what you're living for. And you need to let these trying times allow you to reflect, is Christ truly my treasure? And let the fires of suffering, whatever they might be, let them 
Just let them burn away all competing treasures. That's a good thing. Let God purify your devotion to Christ. He will be faithful to use trials to do just that. That's what he wants from you. He wants your faith. He wants your purified, 24 karat gold, pure faith in his son. These are the truths we need to be reminded of. This is where we need to set our minds. Life is still long and hard. It's full of real trials and tribulations. We're not minimizing anything here. Suffering is real. But because of Christ, it need not steal your joy. And we started considering James who said, count it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And now you see that that's only possible when you have an eternal perspective. But you realize it is possible. You you can actually do that. You can consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because eternally speaking, you see what God is doing in the world, in his kingdom, in your life. You can count it joy. And no matter what happens in this life, nothing can steal your joy because nothing can rob you of your treasure, Christ. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. Not even a virus. And so eternally speaking, what do you really have to worry about? Nothing. And so like I said, just let these times of distress and uncertainty, let them intensify your heavenly hope. Let them remind you, this world is not your home anymore. Let's fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you do so, you know, the storm outside may not go away. But Christ will guard your heart with his perfect peace and enable you to endure. Now, I want you to think one more time about the Apostle Paul. I mean, talk about giving your life for Christ. And as a result, he was persecuted beaten, robbed, shipwrecked, you know, all many times over. You don't know real fear and panic until an angry mob takes you out the city and stones you and leaves you for dead. That happened to him. But how how does Paul teach us to respond to affliction, to distress, to trial and tribulation? He knew a thing or two about that. What does he say? You can listen, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, but, but write that verse down. Let that be your meditation. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, therefore, after reflecting on his affliction, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And do you get what he's saying? We do not lose heart. But our our body is sick and dying. We do not lose heart. But, you know, the economy is shutting down. People are losing their jobs. We do not lose heart. The world around us is falling apart. We do not lose heart. These things all hurt us. We're going to suffer, but, but we do not lose heart. How? Because this, this affliction, eternally speaking, I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's light compared to the glory that's to be revealed. Just put it in perspective. And even still, the the more we endure, it's only building our anticipation. It's just building our faith. And look, it's not like we abandon this world, go sit in a tower and think about heaven all day. God calls us to live and work and witness in this world. But to do so and to endure, you're going to need to fix your minds. Look at not the things that are seen, the things that are unseen. Things eternal. Times of distress will come. Things may get worse in our world. In fact, you can count on that. But do not lose heart. Do not despair. Instead, subscribe to God's eternal perspective. It's the only thing that makes sense of life. 
and death. This enables you to see trials even as God's servants aiding us and truly believing that this is not our home. We're not living for things here below. Here below, we have no lasting treasure. Our only hope is found in things above. So look up and stand firm. I want to leave you with what I think is a, is a perfect capstone passage. It's Philippians 3:20 and following, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, therefore, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. That's what we need to do. Look up and stand firm. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray you help us to do just that, to look up and to stand firm. We need your word in times of distress, in times of uncertainty. We need your word to remind us, to tell us what's true, what's right and wrong, what's real, what's not real. Suffering so quickly clouds our thinking and disturbs us. It it almost makes us forget our heavenly hope, but we dare not do that or, or fall into that mistake. Then we will forget our treasure. We'll forget life's meaning and purpose. It's not found in anything below. In fact, we can see this trial as only purifying our hope. And it's all come, it all comes down to, to Christ, a person, our Lord, our Savior. He, he's the reason for it all. He is our treasure. He's the only one who can redeem this fallen, cursed, broken world. The world right now needs the gospel, the hope of Christ. We need that too. We who've believed need to continue to set our minds on him, on his truth, his gospel, his treasure. Our life is hid with him above. That's the life we are now living for. We do not abandon our our responsibilities here on earth, but Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, that we might run this race well with endurance. Encourage your people. These, These are difficult times, but Encourage your people. Lift their spirits. Help them not to lose heart through the truth. Let it just be a foundation in their soul of what is true. You're on the throne. You hold us. We need not fear. We can say it is well with our soul because of Christ. So thank you for that, Lord. And may these truths stay with us during this time. And even when this season is over, may we still live for Christ as our heart's treasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.